Genesis chapter number 17 tonight. I'm excited about the message. We have spent six weeks looking at the life of Abraham and more specifically at faith in the life of Abraham. Faith is an element in the life of Abraham. And we come to a crucial time in Abraham's life now. Uh, two episodes ago, we came to the time in which Abraham had the righteousness of God imputed unto him because he believed the Lord. And so if we were to try to equate the salvation experience of the Old Testament saint with that of the New Testament, uh, we would say that Abraham got saved in chapter number 15. But chapter number 17, we find that his faith is being brought to a higher level. Let me pause for a moment and say that faith, if it's biblical faith, is a growing thing. It's something that should be exercised. It's something that should be strengthened. And if you walk with God, that will take faith to do that, and it will also build and grow your faith. And we see this in the life of Abraham. Even though he makes mistakes, still God is working in his life. I'd like to read the first 19 verses, and you can either say amen or oh me right there. I don't know, but you uh, pay extra close attention. The Bible says in verse number 1, And when Abram was 90 years old and nine. The Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. And I will make my covenant between me and thee and will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made thee. I will make thee exceeding fruitful, and I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant. That's an important phrase that's used there. To be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God said unto Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant therefore, thou and thy seed after thee in their generations. This is my covenant which ye shall keep between me and you and my seed after thee. Every man-child among you shall be circumcised, and ye shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of the covenant betwixt me and you. And he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you, every man-child in your generations. He that is born in the house or bought with money of any stranger, which is not of thy seed. He that is born in thy house and he that is bought with thy money must needs be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised man-child, whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised, that soul shall be cut off from his people. He hath broken my covenant. God said unto Abraham, As for Sarai thy wife, thou shalt not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall her name be. And I will bless her and give thee a son also of her. Yea, I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations." Kings of people shall be of her. Then Abraham fell upon his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born unto him that is an hundred years old? 
Shall Sarah, that is ninety years old, bear? And Abraham said unto God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. And God said, Sarah thy wife shall bear thee a son indeed, and thou shalt call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant, and with his seed after him. Would you pray with me this evening? Heavenly Father, bless your word. Use me in such a way that would give you and you alone glory. Lord, you know the heart's needs in this room tonight. I do not. Father, I pray that you would meet those heart's needs. Uh, Lord, I believe firmly that you purpose who will and won't be here. And I believe you purpose the message that it may be applied to hearts. And Lord, that your word may pierce to that which is needed the most in our lives. So, Father, I would ask that you do a work. And Father, that you would meet with us in a mighty way. Help us, Lord, to be obedient to your spirit and obedient to your word in all that we perceive and hear and see and do. Father, we love and thank you for it. In Christ's name, amen. We find as we read this passage that this is the seventh episode recorded for us in the life of Abraham. And uh, I can finally quit fighting against the urge to call him Abraham and have to call him Abram because his name has been changed at this point. We find if you study the Word of God that numbers have significance. Now, I'll admit you can get a little too far in the ditch when it comes to studying numbers in the Bible. I've uh, read after men that were brilliant men that studied numbers in the Bible, and uh, it got to the point where they had their dividends mixed in with their fractions, and they had their remainders mixed in with their multipliers, and before long, uh, their doctrine was beholden to the math teacher. Amen? But when I read the Word of God, I find that certain numbers have significance. And the number one deals with the uh, singularity and exclusivity of God and also His unity. Uh, the number two deals with the idea of fellowship, but it also deals with compare and contrast. That beautiful number three presents to us the triune God. It's God's stamp upon all that He does. You and I are created as triune beings in the image of God. And so you look at your body and you'll find that the entirety of your body is made up of body and soul and spirit. And all over your body you can look and you'll find that your hand is made of three sections. Your leg is made of three sections. You'll find when you look all over your body that the number three is stamped upon us. And so the number three is the signature of the Creator, if we could use such a term. The number four typically deals with the idea of universality of the entire world. This world has four hemispheres, a compass points in four directions. And we find that the angels of the Lord... Uh, came and gathered from the four winds in the book of Revelation. And so the number four deals with the entirety of the world. The number five, me and, me and Ralph might have to box it out over this one. We have some differing opinions. But uh, the number five uh, deals in the Word of God, I believe, with the idea of grace. Now, Brother Ralph says it deals with death, and I, I agree with Brother Ralph in this sense. Me and my father-in-law were talking about it one day. You never have grace without there being death first. Someone has to die in your stead for there to be grace. And so I believe that we'll probably have found some common ground, Brother Ralph, because I believe that the number five does deal with death, and I believe it deals with grace as well. And oh, what a beautiful thought of grace. Grace because of the death of the Savior. Grace because of His substitutionary sacrifice upon Calvary. Thank the Lord for grace in our lives. The number six, the Bible tells us explicitly, is the number of man. And the book of Revelation tells us that the mark of the 
beast will be the number 666. By the way, have you noticed that our government is trying to perfect the uh, technology of implanting information uh, computer chips into the human body? And it's been all over the news. Now, I don't believe that is the mark of the beast. If that's the mark of the beast, my theology is all mixed up, either that or I'm not saved, one of the two. Because, oh boy, I'm preaching faster than I can breathe, aren't I? Um, <laughs> Uh, because uh, I believe that the mark of the beast is going to materialize during the tribulation period under the authoritarian rule of the Antichrist. Uh, but we find we come to the number seven. Seven's a beautiful number in the Word of God, for it deals with perfection. Uh, the Lord created the earth in six days, and on the seventh day He rested. All through the Word of God, you study dispensationally the Word of God and you'll find seven dispensations until that final dispensation. All through the Word of God, the number seven deals with the idea of perfection. So it's not unusual that as we study the life of Abraham, we find that the seventh episode deals with the idea, and if you're jotting it down, you can jot this down as a title, of faith developing we find that the culmination of many of God's promises, or at least the revelation of them, comes into being in this seventh episode in the life of Abraham. You see, Abraham learned some things that he had never known before. And while we could spend all evening uh, studying many of the truths, I've already told you we've got food in the life center, and so I don't want to riot on my hands. So I've divided this into three broad categories that I believe God shows Abraham some things concerning his faith. And I want to say that the first thing that God reveals to Abraham is the person of the sovereign God. Look with me again at verse number 1. And when Abram was 90 years old and 9, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God. We have a new introduction of one of the divine titles of the Almighty God. He's known as El Shaddai, the Almighty One. And you may say, well, that's not very significant. What does that mean in the life of Abram? Well, in the life of Abram, the uh, name El Shaddai denotes about the all-sufficiency of God, that God is able to provide for His people, that He meets their needs, that He does what He said. He would do. And so when he approaches Abram, if we could put it in modern terminology, I would say that uh, God comes to him and says, Abram, I'm the God that keeps His promises. I'm the God that provides. I'm the God that meets your needs. Can I tell you tonight that the only reason I can have faith in God's Word is because it's God's Word. If it was man's Word, I couldn't have faith in it. But we hold in our hands the very inspired, preserved, infallible, inerrant, plenary inspired. Does that phrase bother somebody? I, I think it probably does a lot of times, but I still believe it. I believe this whole book, Genesis to Revelation, is the Word of God. I don't believe it needs to be corrected. I don't believe it needs to be altered. I don't believe it needs to be changed. You see, I believe God is able to keep His promise when He said, I will preserve His Word. He'll preserve it. I believe God can keep that promise. But let me tell you something. I, I don't have to worry. We live in a bad economy. You know that? If you don't know that, you haven't gone to the gas pump lately. You haven't gone to the grocery store lately. You haven't gone to buy anything lately because it's evident we're in a terrible situation economically. And I believe, you can take this for what it's worth, but I do believe that America is not found anywhere in Bible prophecy. I do not believe we face a nuclear holocaust. I believe we face an economic holocaust. Now, that's personal opinion. You can take it for what it's worth. Oh, Lester Roloff, you say opinions are the cheapest thing in the world because everybody's got one. Amen? 
But uh, I believe that we're going to be so financially crippled in this world that we'll no longer be a superpower. I believe we'll just be another seat at the table of a one-world order one of these days. I believe there'll be no significance to the United States of America. But, you know, I'm thankful for something. I'm thankful that no matter how bad it gets in this country, my citizenship is somewhere else. I'm not looking to Mr. Obama to provide for me, pay my bills. Let me say this, I'm not, I wasn't looking for President Bush to do it either. That's not a partisan thing, neighbor. Uh, that's got to do with your citizenship being found in heaven. Uh, the Bible says that our life is hid with Christ in God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth, for ye are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. The truth of the matter is, we get so caught up and worried about this world when we're just passing through. It's not our home. It's not the place where we're going to maintain our citizenship. We have a heavenly citizenship and we have a heavenly inheritance. And so I believe that God is revealing to Abraham this truth and this thought. Abraham, you're not looking to the crops to meet your needs. You're not looking to the Canaanites to meet your needs. You're not looking to your comrades to meet your needs. Abraham, I am the almighty, all-sufficient, all-providing God of the Word of God. It is absolutely integral to the faith of the believer that they understand that their life is within the possession and providence of Almighty God. I don't believe that you can grow in your faith until you understand who exactly it is that meets your needs and provides for you. You'll always be wondering, you'll always be doubting, how could this Syrian ready to perish step out of a life of comfort, step out of a life of family, out into the promise of God with nothing visibly seen that could have done anything to provide for him? He did it because he believed God. That's why he did it. As you enter these perilous times, it's important that you understand God as this person, El Shaddai, the Almighty God. Not only does He show to him the provision, but He shows to him the requirements that are given. He says, walk before me and be thou perfect. Now, the last time that the Lord has uh, been dealing with Abraham, it was when Abraham had believed God and God interposed Himself into a covenant and made a covenant on the behalf of Abraham with himself. And so Abraham is in a different place now than he's ever been before. He knows who God is. He has a relationship with Him. It's not just of a creator and creature. It's not just of uh, potter and clay. But now it is a relationship with God. And so God tells uh, Abraham what's expected of him. Can I tell you that as you live the Christian life, your salvation does not depend on your good works or merit. The maintenance of your salvation does not depend on those things. But the maintenance of your fellowship with Almighty God depends on your walk with Him. I'm thankful He forgives us. I'm thankful for First John 1, 9. I'm thankful when I've messed up. And can I tell you that I mess up sometimes? I'm thankful He'll forgive me and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. But if I'm going to walk with God, it demands that I walk in a perfect manner. You say, preacher, are you saying sinless? No, and the Bible didn't say sinless either. The Bible said perfect. And that word perfect has the connotations of mature, of righteous, of walking in a mature way with God. I believe that's what God expects of His children. Never have we lived in a day of immaturity like we live in today. Uh, I'm going to be honest with you. If the level of immaturity that is prevalent in this country today had been prevalent in the lives of those that lived through the Depression era, a lot more people would have starved than what did, wouldn't they? 
If if the absolute immature, uncanny tendency to lay down and to not go and to not do and to not provide and to not work, if that had been prevalent in the 1920s and 30s, it would have meant a lot more people starving to death. We just live in an immature society. Turn on the TV sometime. You'll find out we live in an immature society. I'm not all about education. Now, I believe that a person ought to educate themselves best as they can. I believe that you'll learn more if you read this book and neglect every other book than you would if you read every other book and neglected this book. Amen. But I'm not against education in any way, shape, fashion, and form. And, and I don't major on education either. I believe God can use a man no matter what situation he's in in life if he's yielded to him. But let me tell you something. Most kids today, it'd kill them if they had to read a book. Right? They'd look at the thing and say, where does it turn on at? <laughs> it don't turn on. You just open it and read it. It's immaturity. And the sad truth is most adults are the same way. Uh, the level of work and the level of effort that it takes. Can I tell you, it's actually seeped into our Christianity today. If most people attended their job like they attend church, they'd be fired in a week. Boy, it got quiet. Somebody turned the air conditioner on, didn't they? If most people, listen to me, if most people paid their taxes like they paid their tithes, they'd be in jail. You know how uh, most people pay their tithes? If I'm there, I'll pay it. If I'm not, I don't worry about it. You know how a lot of people pay their tithes? I'm going to determine what I can live off of, then I'll give God whatever's left over. You try that with Uncle Sam, he'll put shackles on you. And yet there's a level of commitment that we give to the world and the things of the world that we do not give to the God of this uh, well, I say the God of this world. <laughs> that sounds bad. To the God of the universe. There's a requirement that's put on it. God tells Abram, Abram, if you're going to walk before me, you're going to have to walk before me and be perfect. But I'm thankful for what he says here, what he does next. He says, and I will make my covenant between me and thee and will multiply thee exceedingly. It's interesting to note that the covenant that's being spoken of here is a two-party covenant. As you read these other covenants, you'll find them to be three-party covenants. There's a reason for that we'll get to in a moment. The Bible says, And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made thee. The name Abram means exalted father, great and mighty father. It was the puffing up of Abram's flesh. It was the magnifying of who Abram was. God changes his name from Abram to Abraham, which means father of many nations. Now you say, boy, that sounds good. It probably sounded a little empty, hollow, and mocking to a man that was 99 years old. See, every time Abraham, somebody called his name, he was reminded that God had made him a promise. A promise that no man could keep. A promise that all of this physical world would have deemed absolutely impossible. And he says it later on. He said, how shall I bear a child, bring forth a child? And we could put it in modern terms. He said, I'm too old to have kids. But every time they said Abraham, it was a reminder of the promise and purpose of God. There's a lot that could be said about this name change. And name changes are significant. They're all through the Word of God because names meant something back then. But let me just give you one simple thought from it. There's many that I'm neglecting in mentioning this one, but something you can take with you. I believe that as he learned more of the person of God, he learned more of the purpose of God. I believe that part of the reason in changing Abram's name was to show him, Abram, you're not living for yourself anymore. 
It's not about puffing yourself up. It's not about uh, being prestigious in and of yourself. But now that you've been born again, now that you've been saved, now that you've been washed in the blood, however you want to uh, call it, he's saying, Abram, you serve a new purpose now. You've been re-identified. You've been changed. You've been given a new identity. I'll tell you what's missing from the lives of a lot of Christians. They got born again, but they never had a name change. You say, preacher, what do you mean? Your name is your identity. The Bible says, uh, if any man, uh, uh, if, if any be in Jesus Christ, boy, I'm preaching so fast I can't even remember it, amen. Uh, the Bible uh, tells us uh, that a man is a new creature in Christ Jesus. God takes man changes his life. I still believe that. I don't believe that God has put separation and the change that takes place in a believer's life on a hiatus because of the cultural pressures of this world. I think God still changes a man. Uh, But let me tell you something. A lot of them go back to a lot of the mess that they had lived in before. They've been given a a new uh, identity in Jesus Christ, but they are not walking worthy of the vocation. The truth of the matter is, Abram could have been called Abram all he wanted, but if he didn't live like the father of many nations, it wouldn't have changed anything. And just because we slap the title of Christian on someone, that doesn't make them saved, number one. And number two, that doesn't do a bit of good for them to be salt to this earth and a light to this wicked world that we live in. We see that God revealed to him something about the person of the sovereign God. But look at verse number 6. The Bible says, I will make thee exceeding fruitful, and I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. Now, here I want you to notice the three-part covenant that's spoken of. Someone has been brought in to the covenant. It's gone from being a personal covenant to a public covenant. It's gone from being something that was between the Lord and Abram to something that's going to affect the world. And he says, and I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and notice this, and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. I will give unto thee Thy seed after thee, the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, I will be their God. God said unto Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant, therefore, thou and thy seed after thee in their generations. This is my covenant, which ye shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man child among you, shall be circumcised. He reveals something about the person of the sovereign God, but He reveals something about the plan of salvation for the world. And you say, preacher, what do you mean? Well, we find that this is a three-party covenant. God makes a covenant with Abram or Abraham and between God and between an entity that the Bible calls thy seed. Now, the Bible tells us in the New Testament, both in the book of Romans and in the book of Galatians, the significance of the minute detail of God's Word in this particular passage. The Bible says it's not to seeds as of many, but to seed as of one. You say, preacher, why is that significant? You'll find in the Word of God that those that are children of promise are not those that are children of Abraham, but those that are children of Isaac. For Isaac was the son of promise. When the Bible speaks of the seed, it's not speaking of all of the progeny of Abraham, but it's speaking of one man that was promised. You ever wonder why when you read in the Word of God, it says when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. You know why it says that? There was a time period that God was watching. There was a time scale that God was operating on. And when the fullness 
of time came. God sent forth His Son. The reason is because God had promised this seed before. The very first promise, me and Charlie were talking about this today. You may not be a premillennialist. We'll forgive you for that. Amen. But I am a premillennialist. This church is premillennial. And as you read the Word of God, you're going to have to ignore a good portion of it to get away from premillennialism. And in fact, the first, the very first promise given in the Word of God, the very first prophecy given, deals with premillennial doctrine. You say, what do you mean? The Bible talks about uh, the seed of the woman bruising the head of the serpent. And the Bible says there would be enmity between the woman's seed and the seed of the serpent. It does not say the serpent. It says the serpent's seed. Who is the serpent's seed? Well, you find later on that that serpent's seed is none other than the man of sin, the son of perdition, the Antichrist that is to come. So you're going to have to ignore the very first prophecy in the Word of God to get away from premillennial doctrine. But there was a seed that had been promised to Eve. And this seed you can follow all through the Word of God. And the Bible talks about the seed of Eve. But a woman does not have seed, does she? She's got eggs, she's got a womb, but she has no seed. You know why? Because the seed wasn't going to come from the woman. The seed was going to come from a heavenly father. You see, in this passage, uh, there's many things we could talk about. And the promises given concerning the land that would be given and concerning the many nations that would come out of Abram. Uh, but the Bible says, "...in these shall all the nations of the earth be blessed." And that's not talking about being blessed by the presence of the Jews, my friend. Let me ask you a simple question. Has this world been blessed by the presence of the Jews? Now, let me say I love the Jews. I support Israel, and we ought to. But let me tell you something. The Jews have been the fly in the ointment of every political political institution that's ever existed in this world. They wouldn't say they've been blessed by the Jews. They've done everything they could to destroy the Jewish people. What's it saying when it says, In thee shall all nations of the world be blessed? It's saying there's a seed that's coming from you, Abram. There's a man that's coming from you, Abram. There's someone coming. There's a promised child that's coming. And in thee shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And so we find a prophecy in the plan of salvation. Uh, but we find not only a prophecy concerning the plan of salvation, but we find a process concerned with the plan of salvation. Uh, the covenant is made and established with circumcision. Now, to be tactful and not too graphic, most of us understand what that is. And in the Word of God, it pictures the putting away of the filth of the flesh, the marring of the body. You say, what's the significance of that? Because it shows the mode of salvation. Now, you say, preacher, you're telling me a person has to be circumcised to be saved? No, that's not what I'm saying. Paul said that neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision. But what circumcision pictures in the Word of God? It pictures a crucifying and putting away of the flesh. It pictures that something spiritual was going to take place. Something that had nothing to do with the law was going to take place. You say, oh, but uh, the law was an integral part of the Old Testament. Yeah, and the promises given to Abram were given before the law was given. And they were given by faith, not by the works of the law. And they were given by promise, not by the keeping of the Old Testament law. This was something wholly spiritual that was going to take place. Reminds me of the promise that's given when God said He would write His law upon the fleshy tables of the hearts of His people. It's showing that there must be a crucifying of the flesh for salvation to take place. Let me tell you what happened when you and I got saved. I hope that you've been saved. If you've been saved, say Amen. amen. Good. If you didn't say amen, then say amen now. Oh, I knew you wouldn't fall for that one. Amen. We're in church. Can't admit that. 
Don't want to get too honest. Somebody might get saved in here. Amen. But uh, <laughs> when we read in the Word of God, the Bible says that Christ has crucified the old man. Crucified. In other words, what Christ did when He died on the cross for your sins is He took your sins and your sin nature upon Himself. And He died upon a rugged cross. You know why that is? So that now when we put our faith in Him, the flesh, which goes away with death, by the way, there's not a single thing in this world that when it's died hasn't begun to decompose. Everything that's flesh tends towards dying and decomposing away. And so the flesh is being crucified and buried but we're risen, the Bible says. Buried, but risen again in newness of life. So what's happened? The old man has been crucified and put away. The new man has been raised up with Jesus Christ. You might say, but I'm still alive. My flesh is still here. Paul answered that. He said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Now, that's pretty plain. That's simple. If you've been saved, you've been crucified with Christ. But Paul says, I'm living. He says, nevertheless, I live, yet not I but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. You say, preacher, what's Paul saying? Paul's saying that the old man's been nailed to the cross. And now I walk in newness of life. The spiritual man lives within me. Now, you still have a sin nature. Don't think you're going to eradicate the sin nature on this side of the grave or on this side of the rapture. The Bible is very, very clear. Paul spoke of it himself uh, in the power and inspiration of the Holy Spirit when he spoke of the struggle that we would face day in and day out in the book of Romans. He said, uh, boy, let me get ready to make your head swim. He said, what I would, that do I not. But what I would not, that do I. So then it is no more I that do it, uh, but sin which dwelleth in me. What's he saying? He's saying, I want to do the right thing, but it's just so hard sometimes. Why is it so hard? Because we have a sin nature that lives within us. But the Bible says, Beloved, now we're the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when He shall appear... I don't think you got that. Let me say that again. But we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. What's going to happen then? The eradication of the sin nature when this corruptible is changed and puts on incorruption. But we find the process that takes place. It only takes place. We talked about it earlier. Grace never comes except there's death first. And the old man is crucified with Christ on Calvary. The law is put away. Christ is the end of the law and righteousness to everyone that believeth. The handwriting of ordinances which was against us, which was contrary to us. You say, what's that? That's the law. And the law was given uh, not that we might see what great people we are. And the law was not given so that God can say, okay, here's a bunch of easy rules that with your watered-down, casual Christianity, you can keep to through your good works, get to heaven, and attain to my righteousness. That's not what the law was. The law was not God saying, here's ten rules to follow, here's the, the main points, you keep these and you're all right. There's some 600 laws in the Old Testament. You know what the law was? The law was God throwing down the gauntlet and saying, you want to be righteous on your own? Here's what you're going to have to do. It was God throwing down His righteousness and saying, you want to see what it takes to be God? That's what it takes to be God. What was it given for? That every mouth would be stopped. That the whole world would become guilty before God. The law is our schoolmaster bringing us unto Christ, the book of Galatians says, to show us our insufficiency and our inability. We read that the law was given for that purpose. 
And uh, the Bible says the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. That handwriting of ordinances that was contrary to us, He took them out of the way, the Bible says. Took them out of the way, nailing them to His cross. I'm thankful that I don't have to keep the law. It's done being kept. (laughs) I'm thankful that I don't have to worry about my righteousness because my righteousness is just filthy rags. And I'm thankful that my righteousness is only the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's not my own. We see the plan of salvation given to us that there would come a seed into this world. He would die a substitutionary death for your sins and mine. Look at verse number 15 and through 19. We'll close. The Bible says, And God said unto Abraham, As for Sarai thy wife, thou shalt not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall her name be. I will bless her and give thee a son also of her. Yea, I will bless her, and she shall and uh, she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be of her. Then Abraham fell upon his face and laughed, and said in his heart, Shall a child be born unto him that is an hundred years old? And shall Sarah that is ninety years old bear? Abraham said unto God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. What's Abraham saying here? I'm going to pause for a minute before I read the next passage. Abraham's saying that Ishmael, who is accomplished in the strength of Abraham's own energy and flesh, oh, that Ishmael might live. uh, Abraham is saying to the Lord, Lord, I've got a son. Just let me have Ishmael. Lord, let Ishmael be the son of promise. There was one problem, though. Ishmael was not a son of promise. Abraham had sired and fathered Ishmael by Hagar, the Egyptian handmaid of Sarah. And he had done it without any supernatural intervention of God whatsoever. Ishmael was a symbol of his own zeal and personal ability and his own, uh, uh, his own accolades. Can I tell you that the sons of Ishmael today still expect to gain heaven by their own zeal and passion Let me tell you why people in the Middle East walk over into a marketplace with a bomb strapped to their chest and kill a marketplace full of innocent people. You know why they do that? Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. Let me tell you why it is that men flew into the World Trade Center and killed over 3,000 people. Let me tell you why it is that pastors and missionaries are having their heads cut off in the Middle East. It's that, oh, that Ishmael might live. But there's something else in this passage. Aren't you glad God ignores you sometimes? (laughs) Look what he says. Look at verse 19 and we'll close. It says, And God said, Sarah thy wife shall bear thee a son indeed. And thou shalt call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his seed after him. If you've accepted Christ as your Savior... You've done so based upon the promises of God. You're part of the seed of Isaac. Not part of the seed of your own energies and flesh, but part of the seed of Isaac. We see the promised son that would be given. Uh, God made it very clear that Isaac was going to be the one whom would be used to bring the Messiah. And by the way, he is. Islam tells you that it was Ishmael. Islam lies. It was Isaac. Uh, the Bible's very, very clear as to who the son of promise was. You'll have to read the Koran to get that convoluted and corrupted 
end of the story. The Bible only gives us the pure truth of the matter. And that's that Isaac was this son of promise. It looks forward to the coming of our Savior. You may say, I don't see a sacrificial death in this passage. Uh, Read about five chapters over. You'll find the sacrificial death. We'll get to it one day, and I promise you I'm going to preach all up and down it when we do. But let me say a quick word about a later episode that take place in Abraham's life. God would speak to Abraham and say, Abraham, take thine son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, sacrifice him. Take him up upon Mount Moriah. Give him as a sacrifice. Now, we read the Word of God, and we think the significance of that was Abraham's dedication. It wasn't. The significance of that passage, the book of Hebrews tells us, was not Abraham's dedication, but Abraham's faith. He says in the book of Hebrews chapter number 11 that Abraham reckoned that God was able to raise him up. Abraham was putting his faith in this. God made me a promise. Chapter 17. (laughs) God made me a promise some 14 years ago. God gave me a promise some 20 years ago, some 25 years ago. We don't know exactly when it was, or I don't, maybe you do. (laughs) God made me a promise those many years ago that in Isaac thy seed would be called. And so if I take and kill Isaac by the command of God, God's going to have to raise him up from the dead. The execution upon Isaac was pronounced by the Word of God. Can I tell you that the execution upon the Son of God was pronounced by the Word of God? was prophesied long, long, long before Pilate ever entered this world. Prophesied long before Herod ever drew a breath. It was prophesied. The Bible says, He shall be led as a lamb to the slaughter. As a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was numbered with the transgressors. He bore your sin and my sin. You see, the significance of this promised son was not in his life, but in his death and in his resurrection. God commanded Abraham to do so. Abraham took his son Isaac, a couple servants, and began journeying uh, to Mount Moriah. He stopped there and left his servants at the foot of the mountain. And Isaac looked at him and asked him a question. We, we talked about this last Sunday morning. He said, Father, he said, here am I, my son. Here is the wood, here is the fire, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? That question went unanswered until John the Baptist answered it. Behold the Lamb, which takes away the sin of the world. But, I like this. I'm, I'm going to try to blow your mind here. You ready? Three days journey. Three days journey from where he left his servants up to the sacrificial place. You say, what's the significance? For three days, the servants of Abraham reckoned the son to be dead. For three days. He gets up to the mountain and as an obedient son... By the way, do you know that Isaac carried the wood for his own sacrifice? Our Lord carried the cross for His own crucifixion. Gets up there and I've always imagined what that'd be like. Don't you know that was an awkward moment when Isaac looked around and realized that they was going to continue on with the sacrifice? (laughs) But as an obedient son, he laid down upon that altar. The Bible says he reached back the knife the angel of the Lord caught his arm, stopped him. 
And he said, Thou hast not withheld thine only son Isaac from me. You say, who was that angel? I'll tell you what I believe. we fight about it later if you want. I believe it was a theophany, an Old Testament, a pre-Bethlehem incarnation of the Son of God. You say, why do you believe that? He said, Thou hast not withheld thine only son from me. From me. Let me tell you what happened that day. Isaac got off the altar. And in a spiritual sense, the Son of God climbed on it. He was willing to go and be a sacrifice. There's a promise that's given though. Do you know that we don't see Isaac again? Oh, by the way, uh, you know, Abraham named the, that place Jehovah Jireh. means that the, the Lord Jehovah will provide. And if you study and read the Word of God carefully, uh, that name Jehovah Jireh it denotes in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. Do you know that that mountain turns up again in the Word of God? It's got a different name though. It's not called Moriah. It's called Calvary. Golgotha, the place of the skull, the very place where Isaac had been sacrificed or would have been. You see, uh, the lamb took his place for the sacrifice on that day. But years later, he took his place on that hill for a different sacrifice. But uh, something very interesting. They come down the mountain. I know you're getting hungry. I can hear your belly's growling. You'll have to amen over that to keep me from getting discouraged. Stick with me for a moment. Do you know that we do not see Isaac anywhere in chapter number 23. So far as we could deduce from Scripture, and I understand Isaac, I'm sure, came down from the mountain. I'm sure he went home. But as far as the plain record of Scripture is concerned, chapter 23 is completely silent as to the presence of Isaac. Immediately after the sacrifice, nothing said of him. We find him in chapter 24. You know what he's doing? He's coming out to meet His bride in the field. <laughs> we find in chapter 24 that Abraham took his servant, his trusted servant, Eliezer, and said, Eliezer, I want you to go and find a bride for my son. Eliezer is a picture of the Holy Spirit calling the bride out of the world and alluring her with the charms of the bridegroom. And so he calls, he goes, and he, he finds Rebecca, and he brings her. And the next place we see Isaac. The last place we saw him was on the Mount of Sacrifice. The next place we see Him, He's coming to meet that bride in the field. Can I make you a promise tonight? He's coming back. He's coming back for His bride. It's not over. You say, I've never seen Him. No, you haven't. The Bible says, whom having not seen, we love, we adore Him. He's precious to us. I know you haven't seen Him. People say, I saw the Lord. They can say that if they want, but they're going to have to argue with Paul because Paul said He was seen last of all of me as one born out of due time. The Bible teaches that though our Lord is not with us bodily, He's with us spiritually. But He is alive, my friend. He is alive. He is not dead. He sitteth at the right hand of God. He ever liveth to make intercession for us. He's working in heaven on your behalf, on my half, not to pay for your sins. He already put away sins, but to be the high priest for your relationship with God. But there's coming a day the Bible teaches us when the Father's going to rise up and say, Son, it's time. It's time. It's time. The Son does not know. The Gospels tell us He does not even know. The angels in heaven don't know and the Son doesn't know. But one of these days, He's going to see that ancient of days, the Father of heaven, rise up from that throne and say, Son, it's time. Go get your bride. <laughs> Go get your bride. Isaac's coming back for us. The, the son of promise, he's coming back for us. The son of God, he's coming back for us.
for those that have been washed in His blood. If tonight you haven't been, then this, this could be the last time that you ever have to doubt your salvation. You can get it settled tonight. If, if you know that you're not saved, know that you're not saved. Today, today can be the last time you ever have to live as a lost person. You can be saved tonight. But let me warn you, if you put it off, the bridegroom cometh. He's coming back. And when He comes, He's coming for His own. And He's coming when we see Him. He's coming uh, and He's going to be that meek Galilean when He comes back for us. The Bible says, in like manner shall He appear. When He comes back, He's coming back as the Savior. He's coming back as that One that loves us so tenderly. Then He's coming back again. I told you I was a premillennialist. He's coming back. And when He comes back in power and glory, He's not coming to set His feet on Mount Moriah. He's coming to set them on the Mount of Olives. Cleave it in two. Coming in power and glory and in judgment of this world. Read Revelation chapter 19. Read it carefully. He's coming back. Are you ready for Him to return?